You're listening to the Sportsman's Empire Podcast Network brought to you by Full Sneak Gear. Check out their entire lineup at fullsneakgear.com. Also be sure to check out our entire stable of podcasts at sportsmansempire.com. New from Moultrie Mobile, the Feed Hub offers first-of-its-kind cellular connection and control for nearly any spin cast feeder on the market. When used with the Moultrie Mobile app, you can monitor feed and battery levels, run feeders on demand, receive alerts when feeders are clogged, and remotely adjust feeding times. The Feed Hub is ideal for anyone who maintains feeders. Remove the guesswork and save time by planning feeder maintenance before you drive to your hunting property. For more information, visit MoultrieMobile.com. Think you know the Brooks Ghost? Think again. Introducing the all-new, better-than-ever Ghost 16. Now with nitrogen-infused cushioning for lightweight, supreme softness that feels good every step, every street, every single day. So go ahead, take your daily joyride in the all-new nitrogen-infused Ghost 16. It'll turn your everyday miles into everyday endorphins. Let's run there. Head to brooksrunning.com to learn more. Go Wild is a free social community created for and by hunters. This means that unlike mainstream social media, your trophy pictures won't be censored. They're encouraged. As you spend time on Go Wild, you will earn awesome rewards such as gift cards, free swag, and big discounts on brands like Garmin and Vortex. You will even earn $10 just for signing up. Visit DownloadGoWild.com and sign up today. This is the Nine Finger Chronicles podcast. Brought to you by Vortex Optics. What's up, everybody? Welcome back to another episode of the Nine Finger Chronicles podcast. I'm your host, Dan Johnson, and I am drinking, or not drinking, I'm I'm eating or sucking on a Mr. Freeze. It's obviously the generic Mr. Freeze that you get from Walmart or wherever. Like, you know, we're we're not we're not wealthy over here. Okay, we can't afford the name brand stuff. So we, uh, I'm drink. I'm. What is this? This is blue. You know, it's not like it's not like a flavor. It's just blue and red and green right there's no there's not even any branding on the actual package it's like a net and it comes with (laughs) and i i mow these down like i love mr freeze like generic mr freezes so that's what i'm doing right now anyway we have an awesome episode today we're going to be talking with aaron warbritton you guys know him from the hunting public and really what we talk about today two main things how he uses trail cameras for intel, to gather intel on a piece of public, where he places those trail cameras, how the information coming from those uh, trail cameras lead to kind of a multitasking event, right? He, he's trying to locate deer, but at the same time, also seeing what kind of human pressure is in some of these spots, and that allows him to, uh, you know, get more intel on a piece of property, how to access certain bedding areas or, or hunting locations, and then how he documents all of that stuff. And I don't mean just trail camera pictures and whether or not that intel is good for that year or for the next year, but how he documents like 
access routes, how he documents uh, parking areas, uh, food sources like acorn trees, um, you know, rubs, scrapes, beds, all that stuff. That is the information that, to me, is very analytical, and you've heard it. I mean, last week we talked to the Drury Brothers, and they talk about how they basically document everything. They do it differently, but how they document things like weather and, and all this stuff and waiting for the right conditions. And so what you have here is you have these two different methods with the goal being the same thing, and that's a big gnarly buck, right? So. I love talking. I can relate to Aaron a little bit more because he does the run and gun method like I tend to do. Uh, and although we are not the same either, right? I, I hunt majority private ground. It's not, and the the whole aspect of private versus public, you know, there's some gray area in there. Really what it comes down to is pressure versus unpressured. And so uh, I, you know, I, I'm a little bit different in, than him and we talk about the the similarities and the differences there in in this episode as well and i really think if you pay attention in this episode you'll be able to take away something that might help you this fall and or how to collect data from this fall that will help you down the road as well so uh awesome great uh an awesome episode with aaron uh dude's pretty intelligent when it comes to this kind of stuff so i love talking with guys like that like uh, aaron so Huge shout out to Aaron for coming on. Huge shout out to all of you for uh, listening. Uh, I want to talk real quick. Tethered, if you're looking for an awesome saddle, go check out Tethered's website, man. Uh, they have platforms, they have saddles, they have climbing sticks, and then they have all the accessories that you need. Really good brand, really good people. Wasp Broadheads, man, you want to talk about a head that not only am I very confident with, and I've gotten confidence with their products throughout the years because of straight up killing animals, having good blood trails and, and quick recoveries, right? A lot of that has to do with practice, but a lot of that also has to do with the broadhead itself. So if you want to go check out a badass broadhead, mechanicals and fixed blades, go check out wasparchery.com. Uh, discount code SN, no, excuse me, NFC20 for 20% off. Hunt stand, we talk about in this episode specifically how we're documenting everything that we see how we journal everything that we find and i'm doing that on hunt stand right i'm, I'm talking about um every little pin drop is important every little uh scrape rub uh trail you know stand location where you set your tr tree stands where parking areas are blah 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 everything you document that and what that does there's more points on a graph that graph you can look at and say okay these areas are void of deer here's where all the traffic is and so you can use that void as an access route but also you can use that uh void as don't pay attention to it there's no deer there so you go to where all the the data points are and that's how i kind of use uh, hunt stand discount code sn20 for 20 percent off last but not least title sponsor vortex these guys are crushing it tons of great information on their websites uh and through their all their you know youtube platforms about how to use their products whether you're a, a shooter whether whether you are a, uh, a a bow hunter or a hunter in general whatever rifle scopes spotting scopes um, binoculars range finders if you're looking for a really good uh, optic i very strongly suggest vortex 
because of the people behind Vortex, right? That they are what make the company uh, turn, and they're they're they will do whatever it takes to get to make you happy. So uh, vortexoptics.com, go check them out. And that's it. Huge shout out to the brands that support this podcast. Go to iTunes, leave a review. Make sure you're following Nine Finger Chronicles on Instagram and and Facebook, uh, and even go wild. Uh, go check out uh, all those platforms as well. Huge shout out to Aaron. Let's get right into it. Three, two, one. All right, on the phone with me today, Mr. Aaron Warbritton. Aaron, what's up, man? Not much, dude. Just trying to get all my work done so I can go hunting this fall. <laughs> man, I tell you what. Uh, let's see. This past Thursday, I went out and I put out like 12 trail cameras a couple of them were already out i just had to redo the batteries and and switch out sd cards and whatnot but uh i i i had pushed that day back like like four or five times it was supposed to be done in june and i just got it done in like last week so i got that up but i still feel as far as me shooting my bow as far as getting work organized and things like that i just feel like i'm always behind coming up towards august yeah, man, same here. Every single year is like it's just turkey season ends for us right at the beginning of June and the end of May. And we we always kind of get in a lull there for a couple weeks. It's like, eh, we got, you know, three months or so. We don't have to worry about anything. And then by the middle of July, it's like, holy crap, we've got we got to get our bows tuned. We've yeah. got to start shooting, you know, we've got to. We've got to do the same thing. We got to hang cameras. We got to scout spots. We got to figure out where we're even going hunting this fall. Yeah. So yeah, I yeah, feel that we're way behind too. What's uh, what's the story this year? How many states are you going to be in? I don't know yet. We're not going to hit as many as we did last year. Feel like we got overextended last year, and uh, we had so many different tags in different places that we would go to a state and we would hunt like five, six days. And we would really start putting the pieces together by the end of that trip. And then we would have to pick up all of our crap and drive, you know, 10 hours yeah, and go somewhere else for five days. And we just, that kept happening over and over and over again. It was like, we just had too many freaking irons in the fire. So yeah. this year, I think we're going to cut the number of States in half. We're still going to go to, to a new state or two. Um, that's something we enjoy doing every year is yeah. hunting new States and even, even hunting new areas within the states we've already hunted. Yeah. Um, that's that's something we really enjoy doing. But, yeah, overall, we're just going to try not to go to as many places. We're yeah. going to start off going out west this year. We're going to hunt western whitetails first um, in probably a couple different places, but I'm not exactly sure where yet. Yeah. Um, but, yeah, and then from there, we're, we're just going to be bouncing around. Yeah, uh, we've all got tags at home. Uh, Greg will be moving to South Dakota in the next couple of weeks, so he'll have a South Dakota. Uh, well, he's going to have a non-resident South Dakota permit, but he he had one last year also. Gotcha. And uh, yeah, gotcha. not real sure. I, and I know we want to get back to the south, uh, either straight south or in the southeast. Yeah. So I'd say that's pretty well guaranteed for this year. Gotcha. Yeah, I don't know what it is about western whitetails man they hunt a little bit different than these uh whitetails here in the midwest i i i don't know so when i go out mule deer hunting 
I the 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 whitetails out west. I feel they don't give you a second chance like a uh, a whitetail here in the Midwest might. Like a, a whitetail in the Midwest might stop for just a second and look, and I try to identify. And out west, they're just beep beep, and then they're gone. Like they just run until you, you can't even see them anymore. And so um, I got lucky last year and, and uh, shot a pretty you know it was young, but you know a, a decent whitetail for public ground, and uh, I. Uh, I got, I just was like, I was in shock that it, it worked how it, how I had planned because they're so jumpy out West. I, I don't know. Have you felt that same experience? I wonder why that is. Oh yeah. I wonder why that is. I wonder if it's because they're get, you know, it's so open that they mm -hmm. get, they get shot at with rifles from oh, yeah. the roads. And, and I also think like that's, that's kind of a survival tactic in my mind yeah. because the, the thick, sort of your thick security cover your thick areas are so spread out that a deer can't just he can't just bound off 200 yards and then be in the thick stuff and safe yeah. you know he's got to go a mile or a yeah. mile and a half across some big wide open you know area to get to the next patch of sort of uh, or safe area yeah. if you will where he not seeing people yeah that's so i don't know i it's it, you got to just watch your step out there is, is what i yep. what i've figured out and uh the mule deer man they'll they almost here's my experience with mule deer out west they're obviously completely different animal they will if if you don't stop and stare at them they will let you walk right by them and they won't even move and meanwhile the you know the whitetail goes crazy and then even if you do jump a mule deer, deer this is again just my personal experience they go boom boom they turn around and they'll just stare at you and you know if yep. i was rifle hunting it would be you know game over for that animal but i'm with my bow and i can't take 98 yard shots <laughs> so so uh i don't know i just I, I like hunting those different terrains and those different animals because they truly are a, a, a different animal just like an iowa whitetail is different from a michigan whitetail and and so on yeah that's right yeah yeah i agree it's a blast going out there every year um just being able to watch deer yeah. is the fun part because as you know hunting around home um every you know sometimes you go out and you sit and you're hunting a buck or whatever and you may not see him for six seven eight sits or more i mean yeah. just because it's so thick Yep. You're just basing it off sign and cameras and all of that stuff. But out there, you can lay eyes on them. Yeah. yeah. That's the fun part. Absolutely. And you can see a lot of deer, right? If you're if you're wanting yep. to see a lot of deer, especially when I go to South Dakota, man, I mean, none of them were, are really within shooting range or when I'm driving down the road. I mean, I, I went there not last winter, but the winter before in December, and I was seeing thousands of mule deer and whitetails. And it was, it was crazy how much you could see. Obviously a lot of that was on public, no access, the private that I, I, you know, I sold my fair share of them on, on public too, but it's, uh, I don't know. I just, I love going out West. Yeah, man. Same here. It's All awesome. Right. So I want to talk, you mentioned a couple things here in the early stages of this podcast, and that was trail cameras and scouting and, you know, trying to find places to hunt. All right, so talk to us a little bit about your trail camera strategy on specifically on properties that you tend to find yourself going back to every year. 
Uh, the the ones that we go back to every year, we kind of have we kind of have sort of these designated locations where we'll hang cameras annually. Yeah, and we'll we'll put them in the same spots year after year, especially when scrapes start opening up and stuff. And most of those cameras are like really easy to access. They're they're close to the parking lots. They're on some big food source that a bunch of other people are hunting, and they're over scrapes or they're over trail intersections, but the ideal camera setup is to, is to place it in a spot where we could get potentially nighttime photos of a big buck, but we can also get pictures of people coming and going. Ah, uh, yeah. That, yeah. that helps us kind of understand what kind of bucks are in, the, in that area and then help us understand how much pressure that it's getting. Because if it's a familiar area that we go back to every year, like you're talking about, we already know the kind of the bedding areas that we want to hunt. Yeah. So if we get nighttime pictures of a buck, we can kind of, well, I mean, sometimes we can backtrack them to those bedding areas. If we get pictures of a buck at 10, 11 o'clock at night, we'll just go back there and hunt, you know, the bedding areas that he's coming from. Yeah. And we may go, go about it a completely different way, but that's the, I guess that's the perfect trail camera scenario. Yeah. Is where we can monitor humans and deer at the same time. Yeah. Are you guys ever getting your stuff messed with out on public? Yeah. Oh, all, yeah. all the time? Or yeah. is it rare? Oh, yeah. No, it, it happens all the time. Um, I would say, though, honestly, since we started using more cell cameras in the last few years, those things don't get stolen as much. Yeah. Yeah, you, and I don't know if it's because people see the antenna and they're worried like, oh, crap, they're getting pictures of me right now. Or they they know, you know, they're getting pictures immediately, yeah. which, you know, some of them we have set up to do that. And, and some of them we just have set up to send us pictures once a day to save on the battery life. Yeah. But I find on a scenario like that where it's either a piece of public that's high pressure or uh or high traffic area or even a piece of private right it doesn't really matter if the if there's a lot of people the temptation uh even with a cable lock i mean i've had cable locks cut dude i've had a tree cut down so someone could take oh, my, yeah. my trail camera and so we had guys shoot them off with us with a shotgun slug yeah. during gun season just walked up there and there was just shell casings laying all over the ground <laughs> And the cable was just frayed and laying there in pieces and there was no camera. Do you ever imagine what that person's life is like? Like how upset at life do they have to be to just go out and be like, you know what? I'm taking all my angry or all my anger out uh, on this trail camera today. Like how, how bad of a life do you have to have to just do something that shitty? I don't know, man. Some people, do, <laughs> some people get real possessive about yeah. these public areas, which Makes no sense to me because it's a public area. You yeah. know, I guess, well, I guess when I was younger, I used to get pissed off when I'd go out there and I'd see people, um, you know, I'd be like, dang it, you know, they're going to ruin my hunt or whatever. But as I've gotten older, that's like, that's pretty petty. Yeah. And at the end of the day, you once you just come to the realization that it's public land and like anybody can go out there. Yeah. Then you just, you just wave and move on but yeah. some people are still very very possessive about it and especially in iowa where occasionally you run into a really big deer that's using a public area yeah and what we found is most people most people don't really care if it's a 150 inch type buck 
But if it gets to be 170, 180 or bigger than that, and he's regularly using a public area, like if we're getting pictures of him, there's a good chance a bunch of other people know about him there too. Yeah. And that's when people start getting pretty ruthless mm-hmm. because they they know there's a big deer in there and they don't want to see other hunters. Yeah. Which the exact opposite is happening because other hunters know there's a big deer in there. So they're spending more time in there too than they are their other areas. Right. But right. Have you ever, yeah, we run into people stealing crap that happens, but I'd say 80% of our cameras don't get messed with anymore. Have you had used to be? Yeah. Have you had to ever confront somebody at like, whether it was in the progress of uh, getting a camera stolen or actually, finding out who that person was and and had to confront them or ask them questions uh no i haven't had to do that personally but i one time we got pictures of a guy that was that was ganking a bunch of stuff yeah and uh we knew right where he lived and like you drove by the place his house and he had all the crap laying in his front yard (laughs) so um i I think we were actually in the process of, of potentially doing something about it. But the next time we went out there, all of the stuff was gone and the game warden went and I guess caught him doing something else. I, I, I don't you. even remember what exactly it was, but yeah. the game warden was on to him already because they eventually asked us about him. And if we had any pictures of him, it's like, yeah, we got that pictures of him driving by the camera on a four wheeler, which you're not supposed to have. Yeah. On public land loaded down with all kinds of other people's crap. <laughs> but yeah, I don't, I don't get those people. I don't get them at all. We haven't, we haven't had too many run-ins, but honestly, man, most of the, like 95% of the encounters we have with people out there are all positive. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, maybe even more than that. Occasionally you run into somebody that's, that, you know, doesn't like you or whatever, but most of the time it's not, that's not the case. Right. So as you're putting all these trail cameras out, uh, you know, you mentioned you have these historic, you know, these, these places where you're trying to, you know, uh, multitask with your cameras, right? Not only are you looking for deer movement and and shooter deer, but you're also trying to capture people on them as well. Um, now when it comes to a property that maybe, I don't know, are you guys doing a lot of out of state trail camera stuff or is this mostly local where, where you're running trail cams? Most of our cameras are local. They're yeah. within they're I mean, they're within three or four hours of the home. Gotcha. For the most part. Occasionally we'll put them in other states, but most of the time it's around home. Gotcha. Now, uh when it comes to the data that you're getting from these trail cameras, right? Uh how much of it maybe try to break it down for us. How much of it is real time meaning if a a trail camera sends you a pic cell cam or you go and you check a trail camera and it's there is a a shooter caliber deer on it versus using that and you make a move on it instantly compared to reviewing all of the data and using that data the following year what's the split you think uh I don't know. It's probably 60, 40. We're using the data real time like that year. Yeah. Um, and occasionally on these areas that we hunt year in and year out, we will compare, you know, or we'll get pictures of the same buck and we'll sort of compare which days that he's there 
you know, what crops are in the area and, you know, basically what, what kind of similarities can we draw from the hunting situation this year where this buck is living versus the hunting situation there two years ago when he was in there or last year when he was in there. Yeah. And especially when it comes to like those rut circuits, we, we seem to, to find that bucks will use those towards the end of the month of October that's when we start picking up, you know, a random deer or two on a camera that we haven't seen for three or four months, but we've got pictures of them in the past or we've seen them in the past. Gotcha. They start, they start stretching their legs a little bit. Yeah. But I mean, honestly, it's, it's all down to the individual. Once they get up to being four or five years old, you just, every single one of them is different and you find little similarities between them year in and year out yeah. with the cameras. Um, but a lot of times what we'll do is we'll, we'll leave a camera, we'll hang it now with lithium batteries in it and we'll leave it all fall. Yeah. So we're basically banking that Intel to use next year. Yeah. And yeah. we'll, we'll go in because it's in a sensitive area. We, we go in and scout these bedding areas from the inside out. And a lot of times we'll hang cameras right in the center in a spot where, you know, if we shoot a deer and we've got a track in there, then we'll pull it. But other than that, they usually sit there all yeah. fall. And then we can go and examine, you know, who was home during what time and, uh, and sort of what, where we can go from there. I mean, a lot of, a lot of times we've, we've got really good information from those cameras because as you can imagine, the middle of a bedding area is the most secure area on the, that property. So those cameras get a ton of daylight activity. Right. Right. So you so, know who is bedding close by and when. Right. So 60, 40, 60 real time, 40, uh, you know, 40 next year. Yep. From all of that data that you're gathering, then um, have you on some of the properties and, and, Maybe it's just, this is just a general question, but have you noticed any trends from the data that you're getting as far as, I don't know, time of year uh, or, you know, time of year where the movement really kicks off or the, the big bucks start to get on their feet or the big bucks are going crazy or um, what's the other one, uh, you know, or, or weather patterns that may influence directly deer movement, things like that. Uh, we see your pretty typical, you know, rut behavior as it starts to pick up onward on close to Halloween and that first week in November. Uh, we see them start lighting up more and more as it gets to that time of the year. Yeah. And even the ones that we leave in the middle of the bedding areas, it's the same deal. Yeah. I mean, but, you know, with that said, the flip side of that, the cameras that we're trying to get information on right now we actually we've had more success in the last couple of years hanging cameras this time of year and then getting on some sort of a movement pattern earlier in the fall so like first week of october second week of october third week of october um even in states that open before that we we have at least some luck getting on to patterns before October, like in Missouri, where you've got a September 15th opener. Yeah. Um, we, we use them a lot for that as well. Basically what we'll do is we'll hang them right now and we'll hang them on exit trails, leaving bedding areas. 
Uh, we might even we might even hang them over a licking branch or something. Maybe it's a scrape that just hasn't got fired up yet, but we expect it to in the next month, month and a half. And we'll we'll go around to from bedding area to bedding area, and we might put out two dozen of these things on these exits, and we might run all that we might not touch those cameras until opening day, or until or until the early part of the season when we get the correct conditions to hunt the area that the camera is in, if that yeah. makes sense. Yeah. Then we'll then we'll run them that day, and you know, ninety percent of them might not have anything on them that that is super intriguing but you can yeah, i mean with that said you can still learn something from every camera pull yeah. um but occasionally we will get the intel we're looking for from that camera there will be a buck that is exiting that bedding area or entering it on that camera you know within the last week or so and then we it, we've had some success diving straight in and Usually not hunting right where the camera is at, but diving straight into that bedding area within the next day or two, maybe even that that day. Yeah, and seeing that buck or killing them. Yeah, with with all that said, then, uh, you know, you where where do you guys typically find your success? So I'll and I'll and I'll answer that question. I'll answer it for you, and then I want to hear what you have to say. And, and for my experiences, so I'm a huge fan of staging areas right? I've yeah. never had a ton of success. I mean, I've had some success over the years, but I've a majority of my success comes from staging areas, uh, somewhere between bedding and, and a food source. Okay. And I've never really had any, uh, a lot of success on a main food source or even in a bedding area. Right. I, I just, for some reason, my confidence level is high at staging areas. With with what you've just said, as far as trail cameras are concerned, um, where where are they pointing you in as far as bedding areas, you know, travel corridors, pinch points? Like, where are you guys finding your success, given the data that you've got from trail cameras? Most of the time, it is in the bedding area or at a staging area, like you yeah. mentioned. But we're we're usually hunting staging areas right on the edge of the bedding. Okay. Um, it, but it all depends on where the food source is at, you know, in some of these situations where you've got ag, um, that they're, that they're going to as a destination food source regularly. Um, most of those on public, most of those ag fields you can access fairly easily because yeah. they got to get a tractor in there. So there's a beaten path right to those fields. doesn't matter if they're three quarters of a mile in or right off the road, people are going to be hunting around those things. So bucks don't use those, those during daylight very often. Mature bucks don't right. just because there's so much human scent around them. They still go out there, you know, every day they're out there some in, in a 24 hour period, they're out there in the middle of the night. Yeah. Um, but what we find is very often they'll be bedded up to a half to three quarters of a mile from those in some situations. So we are, we might get pictures of them out there three o'clock in the morning, but we're hunting three quarters of a mile from there in a thicket or right on the edge of a thicket where there is, you know, say there's, say there's an old clear cut where there's a bunch of really thick cover that's grown up because there's more sunlight on the ground. Yeah. And right next to it, there's a grove of, of mature oak trees that's dropping acorns, you know, in late September, that's going to be, so that's sort of your staging area example that we're looking for. Gotcha. 
it's it's right on the edge of the security. Gotcha. Where the bucks, all they got to do is walk like 50 to 100 yards and you're on them. But with that said, some of the biggest bucks that we've killed or got on early in the season, this is this is pre-rut, you know, this is like October 30th and before. Um, basically, and I would say even before that, October 20th and before. Those bucks are in the bedding areas a lot of the time. Yeah. And we're just sneaking into the edge of it. And a lot of times, that's the only deer we're seeing. We're not seeing another deer. Yeah. So um, as your as the trail camera data starts to heat up, as you know, we get closer to the rut. You, you know, right now we're talking specifically about the pre-rut area. Um, like, and obviously, you can't hunt a deer during the night. So if you get a nocturnal picture of a deer, what are you taking away from that? Um, just depend. It, it kind of depends on what time of the night it is. Uh, but I'm looking at the direction that he's coming, the direction that he's going and trying to put those pieces together. Right. Uh, as far as where he's coming from or going to, um, when it comes to bedding area, yeah. uh, that's, that's the end all be all for us on public land. Almost all the time is those bucks get pressured. They, they don't like messing with human scent they are going to move in a thick area during the day and not very far outside of that. Yeah. Um, while it's daylight. So, you know, if I get, for example, if I get a picture of one that's an hour and a half after dark at eight thirty at night and he's coming from a thick area that we've scouted that we know is traditionally good bedding, we will sneak in very soon and thereafter like maybe even the next day or the very next time when we have the correct wind we'll sneak into the back side of that bedding area yeah and we might not go right into the center of it but i i want to be within 100 yards of that thing if i can yeah. a lot of times we want to be in a situation where we can actually see in there and see them either moving around browsing around in it or stand up in it yeah and that's when we find uh, success doing that. But yeah, uh, nocturnal picks could mean any any number of things depending yeah. on the time frame. You know, I mean, if it's a, if it's in a rut, who who knows? Right. What right. could be going on? Right. So, with with this, right? You, you mentioned thick vegetation. It's it's gnarly in there. You know, and and you have this idea of this deer uh, bedding in there, or you actually have a cell cam in there, and you got pictures of them. And so here, what I've found is that thick, nasty stuff where the big boys like to live can throw a curveball as far as access is concerned, oh, yeah. right? How do, you, how do you work around that? Um, well, every situation is a little bit different. We're always, looking for, we're always looking for some sort of weakness that we can exploit. And more generally, if, there, if you run into a situation where it is just really, really freaking tough to get tight to that we've got to wait for very specific conditions to go in there okay meaning high winds wet damp conditions and sometimes i don't even care i don't care if it's 75 degrees or 35 degrees if it's blowing 30 miles an hour and everything in the woods is moving i can get away with way more in those sensitive areas so long as my wind is consistent I can get in there and literally walk up on the thing as he's laying there. If it's 
if the wind is consistent yeah and you're moving slow enough because their senses are subdued you know they can't hear or see you know most of their most of their sight is based on movement and when everything in those bedding areas is moving all the leaves and all that that sense is negated to a degree so yeah that's sort of a long-winded way of saying um, whenever we run into those areas, we are, we're usually very patient waiting for the correct conditions yeah. to hunt them. And it could be the, the opposite of that, too. I mean, you could, you could have situations where you need really calm conditions to slip in there. That way you can hear them moving around in the bedding area before you move in there. Yeah. yeah. You want them to be bedded if possible. Yeah. You can't and, see as far. And that kind of... I don't know. I'm sure you've heard about the the research where on extremely windy days and not just like 10 to 15 miles, but like 20, 20, I think 20 to 25 plus miles an hour deer movement tends to increase on extremely windy days. And so that's probably part of it, right? They don't feel comfortable in their bedding areas anymore or in their thickets because they, their senses, like you mentioned, aren't at they can't use them like they normally do. So it, that, uh, that just kind of falls in line with all the research you hear about, you know, deer movement picking up on extremely windy, on extremely windy days. Yeah, we've definitely seen that, man. And I, maybe it's just our anecdotal experience, but it seems like they just are, they're just fidgety. Like they'll lay oh, yeah. down, they'll get in the bedding area an hour before daylight, and then they'll be standing up at seven thirty. Yeah, and they're just browsing around in it. Now they they may creep out to the edge of it, browse for a little bit, and just kind of look around and smell the air, and then turn around and go right back in. Yeah, but they're still moving around. I mean, we got some situations you were talking about access where there'll be a creek right next to the bedding. Um, with a deep cutout in it, you know, where it's eroded away over time. And yeah. you can take that creek right up next to where those deer are bedding. Yeah. And there's permanent water in that creek, and there's trails leading out of that bedding area. We might actually set up in that creek if we've got a wind that's correct for that spot Yeah. Um, so that we can slide in there. We might honestly be set up within 40 yards of a bedded deer and just hoping that they'll take a trail and come down there to get a drink. Yeah. But – Seems like those spots like that where they got some sort of permanent water source real close by are those are really handy, and we we pay extra attention to those. Yeah, you just explained probably my number one or number two favorite tree stand locations. Exactly what you just said. Like the a creek kind of runs through. Maybe it, uh, in this example, a, a creek meets a main river, and it creates kind of two little um not necessarily peninsulas but two real thick areas that the the crops don't come all the way to um, because you know of erosion and, and flooding and things like that so you have this river bottom scenario where the it's just it's thick it's nasty you can use the water for access slip right up into the stand and oh man it's it's one of my favorite spots to hunt because you can see them you can literally climb up your stand if you're careful and then sit down and see them all bedded in there and it's it's, oh it's beautiful it's beautiful yep that's a huge part of it yeah so um you got you know we've talked a lot about the the trail camera data and how that kind of ties into the overall strategy all right so 
as you will probably agree with me, you know, being able to observe and, and um, take away from a previous year the data that you find or the, the, the observation from the tree stand, all that stuff can help someone become a better hunter. How do you guys document everything that you've found or learned over the course of the year so you can come back and reference it at a later date? We use Onyx mostly. Yeah. And we just we drop gobs and gobs of location pins. Um, we color code them for different years, for different spots. And then we, leave, we put in lots of notes on every single pin. Um, we don't hunt, we don't hunt specific deer very often. I used to do that all the time, but I've kind of got away from it in the last seven or eight years for really a, a variety of, of reasons. One of them is because we, we just like bouncing around. Yeah. We like new, you know, we like seeing new scenery all the time. Yeah. So I'm not, I, I don't focus much anymore on us on a specific buck so much. Uh, as I'm, I'm more so worried about how the deer in general use that area and what, what kind of consistency we can find with the bedding. And we'll, we'll always put in notes when it comes to that stuff. I'm looking like the other day I went out scouting. Um, I guess this is the best way for me to explain this is just to talk about like specific details. Yeah. I went out scouting, um, actually just yesterday and I was, I was looking for bedding. I was looking for thick areas on a new spot where I'd never been to before. And I got in there and I found some good stuff, jumped a few deer, found some old rut sign along the transition along the edge of it. And then I started looking at the oaks to see which ones are starting to bear acorns. Cause even though it's early yet in the summer, obviously we're, we're ways out from where we're going to be having acorns dropping, but you can kind of already see which ones are going to have a, a bumper crop and which ones are pretty well void of acorns. I, I marked four or five big red oaks right along the edge of, of this bedding area that I was scouting that were absolutely loaded with acorns. And there was tons of old rubs in and around those trees. And not to mention right next to those in, in the edge where it was getting more sunlight, there was lots of good browse like beggar's lice and, you know, all kinds of stuff. There was some sumac in there and you could see where deer were browsing on this stuff at all times of the year. I mean, even recently. Yeah. Now these bucks aren't in there yet. They're out on a bean field three quarters of a mile from there, but they're going to shift as you know. So I'm trying to anticipate that and figure out you know when is going to be the best time to hunt that spot and really how to monitor that spot from this point forward without blowing it up like how the heck do i get in there and see if they're coming in and out of there and if i creep in to the edge of it october 3rd for example when i got a good wind coming out of the bedding and i see you know a handful of big rubs dotted in and around those red oaks and start picking up some fresh sign and acorns right there then my plan is sort of coming together. You're, you can kind of, you can kind of see where that summer scouting and sort of that anticipation of where they're going to be is leading to, um, hunting the spot in the fall. It just comes down to when you hunt it. I mean, sometimes we're there a week late. Sometimes we're there a week early. Sometimes we're there right on time. All that, as you know, is just based off of reading that sign as it's exiting. Yeah. 
But that's what I guess when to answer your question about logging data, that's what I'm doing is I got three million pins or that's an exaggeration. Yeah, obviously. But there's pins all over the dang map from all over all these different states and all these different areas. And that's the type of info that we're logging. You know, we're even logging which parking areas they people use the most or which roads are are closed um, that is preventing access. You know, sometimes there's there'll be a bridge that's out and on down one of these minimum maintenance roads or whatever. And this could be in any state and you can't see that from a map. But when you get out there and you realize like, oh, crap, you can't even access this whole entire section of this public area from this direction this year for any one number of reasons. That's stuff that we're keeping track of. Yeah. Yeah. And um, I, I all do those details. I, yeah, dude, I, I do the exact same thing. I, and, and when you, when you zoom out of an area, it just looks like just red, you know, pins all over the place. Right. Yeah. Oh yeah. And, and yeah. but the cool part about what you're doing is the more dots on a graph, and this is, this is the nerdy part of me, the the, the statistical part of me, the more dots on a graph gives you a better uh, reference of what's happening on any type of, you know, data sheet or whatever. So you can look at that and the, the areas that are void of uh, pins, let's say in this example, are, are just as important as the areas with all the pins, because what that tells you is that, you know, there's nothing, you know, there's nothing going on here, but right over here, this is where all the action is. So it's almost like you get to cut half the acreage out of your mind when making decisions and only focusing on, or, or it helps you with your access route, right? Hey, there's nothing in here. I can walk right through this area. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. That's so. exactly right. And that even goes back to the cameras you were talking about a while ago, what you can learn from those. Yeah. We learn, we almost learn just as much from the absence of bucks on cameras as we do bucks being on them. Great point. Because if, if we know there's big bucks in an area and two out of the three cameras don't have any pictures of them for the last month and they're in high traffic areas, I mean that the cameras could be missing them. Granted that's possible, yeah. but a lot of times we'll just move on. We'll write that spot off and we'll focus on the areas that are, you know, that are further away from that camera that because all these cameras are set up essentially to monitor movement out of a bedding area or yeah. out of a couple bedding areas. And if we don't get the movement we're looking for either through observing or on those cameras, we go to bedding area B or bedding area C yeah. It might be 500 yards away and further in there. And yeah. then we just bounce around those um, until we find them. Yeah. So when it comes to, you know, collecting that data and there's so many, the, the other thing I like what you do is you go, you go to the next level of detail and you're looking for that example, you were looking at what red oaks specifically were going to drop, you know, that's, that's next level stuff. And I think a lot of guys stop at a certain, a lot of, a lot of guys who, you know, they, they, they want to be really good at this craft of locating deer. They stop at some point along this, this, these, the attention to detail uh, ladder, I guess you'll call it. And they, they, they don't go to that next level and being able to observe and recognize that is just one more little checkbox 
that say, well, I don't know what this buck's doing, but I do know that there's a ton of acorns on this tree this year. And that might be the, 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 the tipping point for that whole experience right there. Yeah. And I think the volume of the in, Intel yeah. is also important right. because as you know, we're, we're guessing, we don't know exactly right. what's going to happen. We just, we're getting little glimpses as, as to what's going on. So, I mean, it's almost just like playing a slot machine. Yeah. The more time you put quarters in the machine, the luckier you're going to get over time. Like you're going, you're going to eventually hit one. Yeah. And so I'm not just, that's another thing that I hear often from folks that ride in or whatever is, is like, man, I found, I found a situation like what you're talking about where I found two or three big beds and there's some oaks on the edge of them that were, that are going to be dropping in a few months. And they're, and they're like, I'm hunting right there opening day. It's like, well, you got one part of it figured out, but what if he's not there? So right. there's probably a 70 or 80% chance he isn't going to be there when you go in there. Right. If right. he's not there, you need to have, you need to have plan B, C, D, E, F on down the road, right. you know, that you can buzz over and check and check those efficiently. Another thing that is real cool, um, that we've, we're, we're learning about this. So bedding areas are not created equal. As you know, they're, we, we talk about them in the general sense as being thick areas that no people go into, but what we're really looking for there is a bedding area that a buck can use at multiple times of the year that jacks our odds through the roof of getting on bucks, leaving that bedding area. For example, you got a Creek with permanent water on one side of that Creek. You've got big ag fields with corn and beans in them. On the other side of that Creek, you got a thick bedding area. And on the other side of that bedding area, you've got hardwoods, oaks, a CRP grass field with, you know, good natural browse in it. So what you essentially have right there is everything in one spot you got a secure location secure bedding where they can go to three or four different food sources in a permanent water source out of the same bedding area those the bucks that use those areas tend to stay there longer and more frequently in my experience yeah as, as long as people don't come in there and what you what you find is that you know during the summer they may be using that bedding area and accessing the bean field but then come late, mid to late September, they're flipping around and they're using that, that grass field and browsing on Forbes and stuff. And then when the acorns fall, they're going to those. Yeah. And, and they're still using the same general bedding location. The problem is, is that the guy that saw him in the summer is going to be sitting out on the beans because he's thinking, you know, they're going to do the same thing. And then he never sees him. He's like, oh, they went nocturnal or they left the property. Yeah. When in fact they they're only three hundred yards from you. Yeah, they just are going out a different direction. Those are areas that are, man. Those are those spots are few and far between. We don't find a ton of those. It's usually more situational bedding, but occasionally we find those, and those are the ones like you mentioned earlier that we go back to year in and year out. Yeah, because they're such con- consistent producers. Right, and that's when and and so that's a that's part of what I was going to ask on this next question. And I just have it as a bullet point here, the September shift, right? They strip the antlers and it sounds, it seems like uh, on the farms that I hunt anyway, there's a shift. Some bucks come in, 
lots of bucks go out. You know, there's a redistribution of bucks and their core areas and things like that. When it comes, like, number one, do you witness that on your trail cameras and on, on the public that you hunt? And second, what's the, like, do you think, what is the main reason for that shift? Yeah, we certainly, we certainly witness it. It happens more often than not, but not every time. Right. Occasionally they, occasionally they stick around in that example I just brought up. They don't move very far because they're, you know, they may still use that same bedding area. Um, but they're just maybe using a different food source. And I, I think, I think there's a number of different reasons why, I mean, testosterone's going up. They're starting to think about rutting They're their mind is slowly day by day turning to does. So they're making these circuits in the middle of the night more and more frequently as the month of October goes on Yeah, where, you know, they're running scrapes they're trying to see who's around and, and across their range, they become, you know, more solitary almost Yeah, where they're just worried about number one. And on top of that, you are in the middle of a changing season. So you're, you're just going through summer monotonous heat for two and a half months that we're in the middle of right now where they're pretty consistent on their diet but all of a sudden when the velvet drops or testosterone shoots up all of these food sources are drying up while new ones are coming into play at the same exact time great point you know so you got you got maple trees that are dropping their leaves and as soon as they fall deer are sucking them up like a vacuum cleaner same with hedge leaves You've got acorns from a variety of different oak species that are dropping at varying times of the fall that they switch to. The soybeans they were feeding on in early early to mid-August are drying up, and they're not as palatable as they once were. But your clover plot is looking more and more enticing to them every single day as September moves on. Yeah. So it's there's all these variety of things that's going on, and you ain't got to figure them all out, but if you can be out there on the landscape and kind of witness this happen, it will help you tremendously when it comes to seeing these small details. Yeah. Um, I mean, we even, we've, we've killed deer over locust, honey locust trees. You know, when those pods fall, yeah. deer kind of browse on them here and there, but then all of a sudden, for whatever reason, the deer in that particular area just gravitate to them. Yeah. And sometimes it's late in the winter when the snow is on. But you'll just see them smashing those honey locust pods for a week or two on end, and then they're and then they're they left. Yeah, they're, they've moved on to something else. I mean, there's all different sorts of food sources. I feel like that we overlook that are coming into play in the fall. Yeah, um, which hence is one of the reasons why they're disappearing. Yeah, yeah, that's a great point. I and I always go back to this statement. Like a lot of people think corn soybeans clover uh maybe some grass acorns right but a a whitetail can eat 250 varietals of plant life right that's a that's about what research says and so that tells you right there that if they're not eating your acorns man there doesn't mean that they're not there there's so many different things on the landscape that they can eat you just got to go find it oh yeah There's no doubt about that. And that's another reason why we really like those diverse um, bedding areas or staging areas. Yeah. It's like, I mean, you know what 
when you're talking about edge and transition, every everybody's beat that horse to death over the years, but it really is true. That's why deer like the edge and transition yep. is because there's variety there. Yep, fact. And that goes to exactly to your point. That's, um, for example, we just burned our CRP field at my family farm in Missouri. It had been overtaken by fescue, and there was still some good native species in it, but not very many. We burned it. Three months later, I go out there, and there are there's wildflowers, there's native weeds, there's native grasses, there's all of these plants that I didn't see there. Milkweeds out there, beggar's lice, all kinds of stuff. Illinois bundle flower. That stuff is thick now and it was not there two years ago yeah and that that to me that's exactly what that signals to me is like okay we just made 15 other reasons for a deer to come out in this field yeah yeah good point and and the more variety that you have within that bedding area or that staging area wherever basically the more variety you have within the area that that buck wants to use in daylight the more often he'll be there yeah yeah that kind of leads into this next question, and, and that is, what is your experience? Uh, and we talk about trail cameras. You can go that direction. You can talk about um, uh, like how you document specific years on, on your digital maps and whatnot. But crop rotation, right? Do, do you what kind of role do you think crop rotation, especially in the Midwestern states, plays on deer movement? whether that's during the hunting season specific or throughout the whole year? Oh, I think it's a big deal. Definitely. Um, and I'm trying to think of, of like specific details or situations where that's played a pretty significant role. But a lot of times, you know, 20, 30 years ago, you might've been talking about crop rotation with like three or four different crops, right? right. Like you might have Milo one year and you might have beans and you might have corn, whatever. Now, it seems like the majority of crops, it's corner beans. Yeah. And it just goes, they just flip flop and it goes back and forth. Now, some years they'll, sometimes they'll double crop them corn this year and corn next year, but more often than not, they're rotating them. Yeah. And that helps us kind of predict what's in an area. We, we still like to try to drive around or walk out there and see, you know, visually what's been planted there just so we know whether it's on the public or a neighboring property that's going to be pulling deer off the public. We like to know what, what's in there, but corn's going to offer you more cover um, and a better quality food source at slightly different times than beans are going to offer you. Yeah. You know, and especially the time frame in which they're planted and when they're going to be harvested. As you know, as soon as they harvest that cornfield, it's going to be killer for a few days um, because they're going to be going out there picking up waste grain and stuff. And I, I suppose the same is true in a sense with beans, but uh, we like a lot of times we'll see deer rotate from when beans are turning and the corn, if you've got a cornfield down the road that's already turned and it's starting to harden up, they'll rotate right to that, right back to that corn. Yeah. And they'll be in there. Yeah. So it's, it's, it kind of goes along with the big picture of what we were just talking about with all the ever changing food sources. Um, but we are paying attention to it. That's yeah. something we do a lot this time of year, just drive around and mark fields. Yeah. So when it comes to crop rotation, um, 
and I, I know this is kind of a, a hard question because of the, the, the style that you hunt, but do you have, you know, you talk about this, this unique bedding area that in the, this radius has everything a whitetail needs water, you know, they got the cover from the bedding area and then they have all these different food sources. Is there one food source that you feel let's let's just keep it at beans and corn from this crop rotation standpoint do you feel that there that beans or corn like one trumps the other as far as hunting season is concerned uh not really it's just so situational in, in every different sense i mean corn helps you with access much more than beans does so i mean that's a hard one to answer. I, I would say I see more deer on beans throughout the fall, but that's just because it's way easier to see them. Right. You know, right. you can't, you can't see across a cornfield on the flip side of that. I've seen deer use the center of those bean fields at times where there'll be some grass growing out there or something and they'll bed out there at actually in the beans. Right. Especially before the leaves fall off of them. Yeah. But I don't see them using the center of those cornfields as often. I see them, they'll travel through there, but it sure seems like if you've got like a waterway in a cornfield that is full of grasses and forbs and other stuff, that they will just pound that thing. They'll bed in that waterway and then they'll go out and they'll feed in those beans and they'll just, they'll trans, trans or that corn and they'll transition back and forth. Right. It seems to me like they, they really use that outside 10, 15 rows of a cornfield. Yeah. But if it's just a giant cornfield, you know, I don't see them going across the middle of it. Corn almost acts like a barrier. Yeah. Where where beans don't as much. Yeah. So as we wind down here today, um, let's say there's someone who listens to this episode and, and they want to they want to take away something from this episode that's going to make them better at maybe maybe placing trail cameras, um, whether that's on public or private, whatever, or maybe how to better document their season so they can use the data um, more strategically in a either a short-term or a long-term period. Any, any tips that you would, or suggestions that you would say, you know, give this a try for a year and, and then just see how it works the next year or, or what kind of data you get from that? I really like the, I really like the, the cameras on the exit trail strategy. Yeah. I, I liked being able to go in there and identify that thick area where they're most likely to bed, even if it means me bumping them out of there. And I really like doing that this time of the year. Cause that's basically just when the only time when I have available to do it. But uh, it seems to me that, when you can when you can find a way to observe who's home that's when that's when you start becoming more efficient at finding big bucks right so you're either observing who's home with a camera or visually from a distance but the big takeaway there is you have to know where they're most likely to be laying and you have to know how close you can get to that without boogering it so if that for example the exit the exit trail strategy with the cameras 
those exit trails may lead two, 300 yards out from that bedding area, but they're still going to, the camera's still going to tell you who's home. Yeah. If you have it there long enough. And if a buck is using it regularly enough. Yeah. And on the flip side, we were talking about Western hunting examples earlier. If you got a bedding area that you can observe from the distance where you can a either see the deer stand up or B see the deer exit the bedding area, then you can visually watch that. Yeah. So that's, that's more so that's, that's a huge part of our strategy every single year, especially when it comes to hunting around home Yeah. is we, we like to have as many of those spots as possible. And then we just go boom, 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 check them off the list. And eventually we find one where a buck is there, but we're, we're using some little piece of Intel, either sign that we're reading on the edge or cameras or observation to know whether or not they're in there. Yeah. Yeah. I'll be honest right now. I'm, I'm like visually, I I am mentally in the woods right now, like standing on a knob and looking just like almost, you know how on, on Google maps, you can pick the road view and you can uh, look like zoom in on houses and move down the street a little bit and and really like look at the detail. Like right now, mentally, I'm at some of my favorite hunting locations, just like visualizing this uh, access routes and and looking around and observing what's there, putting the piece, trying to put the pieces of the puzzle together. I don't know. I get a kick out of all this. Like I'm really hype right now, leaving, you know, leaving this podcast and leaving this interview. You got me fired up for this upcoming season. Yeah, man. Me too. This, uh, this time of year is actually one of my favorite times of the year because I, one of my strengths is that I have the ability to look at all these details. Like I'm, I'm a very detail oriented person that right. also acts as a weakness of mine because I tend to overthink some things Same. sometimes in the moment, but the ability to see all of these small details, um, I feel like is an advantage for me. So I'm constantly, that's, that's what my brain is on right now as well. Yeah. Is I'm thinking about all of these different scenarios, these, these different things, and I'm trying to anticipate them leading up to the season. That way we can make better decisions, you know, in the moment as we're actually hunting. Yes, sir. That's just, that's, that, that's the part that trips me up though, man. It's like, I overthink the crap out of some of these situations <laughs> where I get in there and I'm like, ah, oh, dang it. Should I be in this one? Or should I be in this, this, this tree over here? Or is bedding area C going to be better today than bedding area A? And yeah. yeah, if I can narrow my focus a little bit, I have much better, much better luck, but I'm always fighting that part of my brain yeah. in the fall. Yes, sir. Yes, sir. Well, I tell you what, Mr. Warbritton, I, I really appreciate you taking time out of your day to uh, hop on and, and chit chat with me. Good luck to you and the whole THP crew uh, this upcoming fall. I hope you guys slay and uh, good luck, man. Thanks, Dan. Same to you, brother. Appreciate it. And there you have it, ladies and gentlemen, another episode in the books. Huge shout out to Aaron. Huge shout out to Tethered Wasp, Hunt Stand and Vortex. Man, get out there. If you haven't had the opportunity to, to do some summer scouting, man, right now, I, I tend to stay out of the woods. I let the trail cameras do the work for me. Um, but if you really, if you got a piece of property late, go out, get it done, right? Go get it done because there's no better time than right now to prepare for the season. And that's what I'm doing right now, every single day, you know, hunt stand, 
drives, checking trail cameras, shooting my bow, right? That's the biggest part of prepping for the season. I'm shooting my bow on a more regular basis now and getting those reps in so that when uh, the big boy shows up, I can put an arrow in his vitals. So good vibes in, good vibes out, wear your safety harness, and we'll talk to you next time. Thank you.